0: It's my favorite era, actually, sort of the 1790 to 1845. And it's because in terms of culture and the things that we like to see depicted, New York basically was at like zero miles per hour. And then by 1865, 1870, sort of the Gilded Age, it's at like 100 miles an hour. But everything in between is accelerating towards this world capital, towards this amazing place. (laughs) That reminds me of a time near the Columbia River. I was out there three days. Snow was everywhere. Suddenly, this red faced engine, a mountain of a man, comes upon me. I stood there not moving. So did he. It felt like years. Suddenly, he says, Would you be willing to trade tobacco for
1: gold? (laughs) He spoke English like a school teacher. (laughs) Ah, uh, i toasting you, Mr. Horn. You're beginning to see the light.
2: Yes, here, here. Well, thank you, John, but
0: I really don't Nonsense. see all the On the way there, the city is growing. It's developing in these incredibly internationally important ways, whether it be like the Croton Aqueduct being constructed or the Erie Canal or the grid plan. All of that happened in this period where it went from farmland to the makings of a city. But I think that the growing pains between that are sometimes hard to envision. But to me, the growing part is the most interesting part. And that's not just infrastructure, it's also politics, and it's also art and culture. I mean, the American art scene developed basically in the 1820s, 1830s, and 1840s, where there was dedicated artists dedicated architects and dedicated landscapists and all of this kind of stuff, it did not have that before.
3: Welcome to Episode 4 of Beyond Burning Gotham. My name is James Scully. These episodes are the history compendium for the preceding Burning Gotham chapters. They'll help paint the picture on what was really going on in 1835. Our characters live in a New York that's rapidly becoming the most important city in the Western world. In this episode, we'll wrap up the first eight Burning Gotham chapters. Burning Gotham Chapter 7 is called Welcome to Hellgate. This is Greg Young. He's been the co-host of the Bowery Boys podcast since 2007. The show's popularity has led to live events, walking tours, and a fantastic
0: companion book. I think that it was that generation that then the greater and more famous, more iconic artists and landscape artists developed after that. And those are the ones that get most of the quote headlines because, you know, it's always Olmsted and Calvert Vox and Richard Morris Hunt and all of the artists of the late 19th century. But they built the reputations on the things that were formed in the 18, 20s, 30s, and 40s. So, to me, that growth story is one of the, if not the most interesting, tale about New York City. Herr Astor wishes
3: to give you this note. Columbus sailed with no map. Do you like it? Thank you for the gold, your obedient servant, John Jacob Astor.
0: What does this mean? Well, that Herr Astor shows. He doesn't tell.
1: Herr Astor thanks you for coming and will relay words soon. Good enough.
4: You men like to play games. It's not a game to me. Cockmouth, Shikia.
3: As we found out in Chapter 2 of Burning Gotham, Washington Irving has helped ensure the Croton Project named Stephen Allen as its commissioner. It's to be paid for with stocks and bonds. The project's cost? $2.5 million, or roughly $75 million
0: today. It's an innovation. Again, you have to think back at what the United States was back then, and cities just weren't that big. And, and relatively speaking, they didn't have that many rich people. Not like as they were in like the 1860s and the 1870s. It's a creative way of funding, but doesn't this kind of set up a model For how future things would be funded in this city. I mean, once you see that something is a success as this would definitely be, they would see that this was like a risk worth taking. So I think that this opens up a possibility for even more of these type of sort of interesting financial entanglements that the city can get into to start funding things. And of course, as we go through the decades here and the then you have certain eras where the city is in debt or the city has gotten itself into financial trouble. In a way, it's a little bit related to this risk that they take here in the 1830s with the stocks and bonds. I mean, you can almost compare it to what the city did, what New York did in like the 1950s and 60s when they kind of really overextended themselves and basically almost went bankrupt by the 70s. So you see cities making these risks because in a way there's they have no other choice or else you just sort of live with the disorder obviously it paid off but you know very easily you could see a scenario where it maybe wouldn't have worked because even just a few decades earlier right aaron burr and the manhattan company let's give him a bunch of money and support and land to build water and then he just ends up doing a bank and doing nothing so you never it depends who's in charge i guess new york's rapid growth after the opening of the erie canal led to socioeconomic
3: unrest As we've mentioned in previous Beyond Burning Gotham episodes, there were strikes, riots, anti-Catholics, anti-abolitionists, and even those who felt the city officials should leave New York's putrid water supply alone. New York's reach was now extending beyond the borders of the state.
1: And you have abolitionists like Arthur and Lewis Tappan and others who were really fighting to sort of get the word across how, how horrible slavery was, and they at this point started something called the postal campaign which was actually directed more towards the south where they were sending literature and uh public whatever publications down to the south to say this is wrong you know these are people just like us they deserve rights and this created lots of tension down south and they were starting to burn abolitionist leaders like uh, william lloyd garrison and the tappans in effigy in places like north and south carolina
3: Daniel Levy, a New York historian and author of Manhattan Phoenix, The Great Fire of 1835 and the Emergence of Modern New York, spoke about some of the things going on in the city. New technologies were emerging, and the public was gaining access. In 1835, a high-powered telescope was placed in City Hall Park.
1: You have Halley's Comet, which happened to be flying overhead. You know, they used to think that Halley's Comet was this ominous thing, or what did it mean, what did it mean, people didn't know, and... By the 1830s, they realized that this was an astronomical event. And it became quite a big event. And you had somebody set up in City Hall Park, which was really the only sort of large park, which is down below Chambers Street. And they set up a telescope there. So for, I think, six cents or so, you can actually look through the telescope and see Halley's Comet with this long tail coming out of it.
3: You know I side with you. Then side with me, brother. Rich whites use me because I'm educated. Poor whites hate me because I'm black. Free men don't respect me because I've never been in chains. I'm not British, French, or American. I'm so sick of hearing you say, it's 1835, as if Haley's Comet will somehow alter our society. In 1835, it was unclear whether New York, or Boston, or Philadelphia, or even New Orleans, would become the nation's top city but the
5: Croton would go a long way in securing New York's future. So in 1830s, New York is really considered kind of the backwater architecturally. And also it helps people to remember that in the 1830s, New York City was the island of Manhattan, and that was it. Brooklyn was a different city, different municipality altogether. Philadelphia was still the largest, most prosperous city on the continent at that time. But Philadelphia's time was waning, and, you know, New York was starting to come into its own as the New York we know now. But still, it's helpful to keep in mind that 1830s, when we talk about New York City, it's just Manhattan. Brooklyn is a different entity altogether. Uh, closely aligned, obviously, because of geography, but separate municipality.
3: Architectural historian Glenn Umberger has shared his insights in all four Beyond Burning Gotham episodes. Like with many of us, the history bug bit him early.
5: So my... Interest in history actually starts back in Philadelphia. So I was born and raised in Philadelphia. I can trace the history interest back to second grade, Mrs. Tillman's class. It was the bicentennial, and which was a big deal in Philadelphia. Being right in Philadelphia, you know, my dad worked a block from Independence Hall and where the Liberty Bell was. I spent a lot of time in that neighborhood getting immersed in early American history, of course, studying it in school. Later, I actually lived in Center City, Philadelphia, and was trained to be a tour guide at Philadelphia City Hall. So I spent 10 years as a docent in City Hall, actually ended up writing my master's thesis when I was in grad school in City Hall. I always knew of New York being from Philadelphia. It was that city up I 95, went there a couple times. But I actually got a job in New York 2011 and decided to make the move to New York for the job. The job didn't pan out, but while I was there, I started spending some time looking at New York architecture more critically than I had before. Who were the players? Who was building what? When was this going on? How's the city, especially Manhattan, organized, architecturally speaking? What are these landmarks that people keep talking about in New York City? And while that was going on, I was fortunate enough to get a introduction to the folks at the New York Landmarks Conservancy. Conservancy was founded early 1970s as a 501c3 landmarks advocacy group. And I did some work with them as a volunteer, programming, writing a lot of social media posts about landmarks. Got interested enough to make an inquiry, so if I wanted to do this as a full-time profession, what would I need to do? And the answer came back as, well, you'll need a master's degree. So I ended up getting my master's of fine arts and architectural history from the Savannah College of Art and Design in Savannah, Georgia, and then was fortunate enough to come back to New York after graduation to work full-time at the Conservancy as their staff architectural historian. And I was there up until last year when I moved to my present location in South Carolina.
3: Each of us has a New York story. Here's Tammany historian Jeff Broxmyers.
4: I am an associate professor of political science at the University of Toledo, which is a public university in Northwest Ohio. But I did my graduate work at the City University of New York Graduate Center. I first learned about Tammany Hall. I first became interested about Tammany Hall when I was a kid. My whole family's from New York. Both my grandparents grew up on the Lower East Side and they grew up in the Lower East Side in the era of one of the heydays of Tammany Hall, actually. My grandfather grew up in the Jimmy Walker era, the Al Smith Tammany Hall on Union Square when that was kind of like heyday and I was always just really very very interested. I grew up myself in Indiana and politics is a lot duller out there (laughs) in a lot of respects and so I was just always really fascinated to hear stories about how things were because my grandfather would always so he grew up and, and came of age in the period of the heyday of Tammany Hall but it was also the heyday of all sorts of other kind of radical parties and movements and things like that so The Socialist Party had a big base in that same neighborhood. But my grandfather told this story where a lot of the people he knew were kind of very sympathetic to the Socialist Party, but they would always vote for Tammany, (laughs) even if they had kind of, you know, sympathies elsewhere. And a lot of it had to do with the very practical kind of politics in which they were engaged in, where if you wanted to get anything done or you needed access to any kind of services or you needed a favor, you voted for Tammany because that was who could get things done.
3: My larger point being, if the Croton Reservoir wasn't constructed, it's very possible that none of us would have such stories, and some other city would have taken New York's place in history. There are also a lot of misconceptions about firefighters. When I spoke with former head of the New York City Firefighter Museum, Gary Urbanowitz, I asked him about the fire department's structure in 1835
2: unlike the common urban legend that it was just a bunch of people getting together, it was the city that really dictated everything. Now a group of citizens could petition the city to form a company to request equipment and to do those things, and the city council, the common council, would have the right and the authority to do that, but the city was spending money to buy that equipment. Those companies often spent some of their own money for other things and maybe for additional equipment, but still it was very formal, each company had to elect officers. So there was someone in charge called a foreman. There was an assistant foreman. There eventually were engineers who were like today's chiefs. And eventually there was a chief engineer. So all that was happening still in the 19th century. So by the time you get to 1835, you already have quite an organization, very well structured, very well managed by the time this fire occurs in 1835. Ladies, get in the carriage and sit low. What's the damn hold-up?
3: We gotta get out of here! Look at your eyes, man! Maiden Lane's on fire and the rain's not putting it out. What the hell should we do? I'll get to Broad Street and west of Broadway. We'll avoid any connection to the commotion. We'll put our hats low and drape the blanket around our shoulders. Damn it! The whole street's lit up! My father always said that fire was the only way to kill a demon. It's a democratic renewal.
2: The communities were much smaller back then in New York you know we're overwhelmed with what exists today you know, you would have access either through the police department or from the watchmen that were in the city to gain access to the fire alarm which consisted of a bell someplace in the area being rung out loud as opposed to they being notified at the firehouse these days it's rung in the area so especially back then you'd have those volunteers hearing the bell and running to the firehouse and in some way being notified as to where that fire was. But because the areas that those companies responded in were relatively close by, they would probably pass the fire on the way to the firehouse to get the engine. It was, again, a very different environment that they existed in versus today. Of course,
3: there are those of us who love living in New York so much that we refuse to leave even after we die. There are numerous stories about Eliza Jamel which paint a picture of who she was in life. There are more still about her after death. The Mars Jamel mansion, which you can visit today, is supposedly very haunted. I asked Carol Ward, the mansion's former executive director, about her paranormal experiences. So
6: my office was right on the same hallway as the George Washington, what's now the George Washington War Room. And either when I was by myself or when my staff was upstairs in their office, basically on a daily basis, it was footsteps down the hallway when there's no one there. My staff had always heard footsteps kind of on the main staircase up and down. A couple of my favorite experiences that, again, might be her, might not be her. We did a lot of film and photo shoots, and we found that things always ramped up when we did film shoots and when we would have big events and probably like the day after or as we were closing down from those events. The show that used to be on called Person of Interest, they had come to film and I was actually getting to be an extra. So we were setting up for a scene and they had set up their kind of PA people on the second floor. We were on the first floor. One of the PAs comes down and she's like, hey, can you tell your staff who are up in the attic to quiet down. We can actually hear them on people's mics. And I was like, there's no one up there. It was a long shoot. It was only me and my visitor services manager still in the building. And he was in the gift shop on the first floor. I was like, there's not any staff members up there. She's like, no, no, they won't get into trouble. We just really need them to quiet down. I was like, I'm a thousand percent telling you there's no one up on that third floor. So if people are hearing through mics, it's not my staff. Tons of things happened on the paranormal investigations, but again, some of my favorite experiences were not during that. I was on the first floor about to go down that staircase that leads to the kitchen and to the bathroom for the men's room and it was where our caretaker lived and kind of the behind the scenes stuff of the house. Turn around to go to the staircase and really quick out of the corner of my eye, there was a woman in a green dress going down that staircase. You know, stuff like that. You gotta believe it.
3: We'll have more of those stories at patreon.com slash burninggotham. While our main characters in Burning Gotham are living in May of 1835... If you're listening to this episode in real time, it's the holiday season. Greg Young recently put out a solo Bowery Boys episode, number 377, on the history of the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree. To close, I asked Greg about his most memorable New York holiday season stories.
0: My favorite story that I always pull out of my pocket involves Christmas trees, Christmas trees is actually a custom that, I mean, obviously it's related to the Yuletide and pagan and all that. But like as a tradition, that was really born in Victorian England in like the mid 19th century and was obviously not something that, I mean, if you're living in a tenement, you didn't drag up a Christmas tree. Right. So it was a very rarefied small number of people did it. Also, like you're lighting candles and it's very combustible, dangerous thing. So it's just under a small environment. In New York, if you did have that tradition by like the 1850s or whatever, how are you going to get a tree? So you have to be rich to even have gotten a tree. You go out, hire someone, and they chop it and they bring it down. Well, the very first Christmas tree market ever in the world was in Washington Market in today's Tribeca neighborhood a farmer just sort of decided, well, there seems to be people coming and chopping down trees around my farm. Why don't I just bring a few to market? Everything was sold at market. There was no refrigeration. Everyone went to the market. So it's amazing to me that one day, this farmer just rode up on a cart filled with trees and immediately sold out of all of them. So that inspired other farmers. And so today you walk down the street, there's like people are selling trees all over the place. That's where it comes from. And that idea, of course, has traveled far and wide since then. In terms of a little bit earlier, of course, if we're talking maybe a little bit closer to the era of the 1830s, but a little before that, there's Clement Clark Moore. He wrote the A Visit from St. Nicholas, T'was the Night Before Christmas at his Chelsea Mansion, as the legend goes. There are a lot of theories about what truly inspired that story because they were slave owners they had enslaved people on their property and like this was an era before slavery was abolished i think it's 1827 in new york so there are some theories that a lot of the sleigh writing and all of that stuff is actually referring to an enslaved man who drove them to market it's interesting to see these old Hallmarks of Christmas that are just sort of come fully formed. We don't question them really anymore or where they come from. And it is fascinating that, like, okay, go back, look at that poem and look at when it was written at the start of the 19th century. And what in the world, what are the pressures that are going into that poem? That's a sort of darker read on it. Certainly, it's a certain, a more concerning read upon it. But to me, I mean, it plants it right back into like, I could picture that. In early new york city in old new york here in the early 19th century so i like that story and then of course all of the dutch roots of sinter claus the dutch had a really heavy influence in developing our american holiday of christmas so it's got a little dutch in it even today like with most new york stories even with christmas
3: there's no such thing as a cut and dry perspective and let's face it as new yorkers we wouldn't have it any other way. Thank you for tuning in to Episode 4 of Beyond Burning Gotham. This concludes our current Burning Gotham production schedule, but we have several more episodes written that we'd like to produce. Want to hear more Burning Gotham? Support the show for as little as 2 bucks per month at patreon.com slash burninggotham. And tell two friends. The more people who know about the show, the easier it'll be to produce more episodes. Special thank you to Greg Young, Daniel Levy, Glenn Umberger, Gary Urbanowitz, and Carol Ward for their insight on this era of New York history. And thank you to both the Hesperus Early Music Ensemble and the Itinerant Band. I'll have links to both bands in the show notes. My name is James Scully. This has been Episode 4 of Beyond Burning Gotham. Happy Holidays, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much.